Well, hey, uh, we're continuing in a series in the Gospel of Mark this morning, and uh, we've been in this for a little while now, and decided to continue. This is going to be Mark chapter 9, sort of like the... Let me open it up. Um, the first part of Mark chapter 9. So if you want to open it up, I'm going to read for us. Um, And this happens just after what's called the transfiguration. So if you're curious, starting in verse 9 is where we'll pick up in this story. Um, And the they they're referring to are a group of people that go up the mountain with Jesus. I'll explain that in a few moments. So as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept his word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. And then skipping down to verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw them or saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. And he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. And then verse 19, he replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And so they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help him. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this powerful story, this word that happened amongst your first followers and with your son, but is also, we're being invited to, happening for us, God. I, can, I think we can resonate with this last statement that we do believe, God, help us in our unbelief. Would you help us this morning, God, understand the ways in which you want to meet us and are shaping us and forming us for life in this world. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, you need to be careful when you're coming down from a mountain. As research and even probably your experiences show you, it's, it's often more difficult coming down from a mountain than it is going up mountains. So there was an article in the Scientific American some time ago that illustrated this, this truth um, called Death on Mount Everest, The Perils of Descent. And it, was, uh, it featured a study that had been done in the United Kingdom the 212 deaths at that point, there have been many more since, um, but 212 to that date uh, at, on Mount Everest. And 192 of those at that time were above what's known as Camp 4 or the death zone, as we like to call it. Um, it's the 8,000 meter mark on Mount Everest. What's more, of those 192 deaths at that point, 56% of the people who died for the various reasons they died, died on the descent from the summit, not as they went up. Another 17% died after turning back from the summit after a failed 
attempt. So between that 8,000 meter mark and the summit. So if you're doing the math, there's a whole 73% of people that have died on Mount Everest on their way up. I'm sorry, on their way down the mountain, not up. In fact, what the study shows is that only 15% of people who've died on Mount Everest died on their way up. There's an unaccounted 12% there that they just died alone. Nobody knows which direction they're going. But, but the reality is, is that it's much more difficult and, and dangerous descending a mountain than it is ascending. And I mention this because uh, as we're looking at this story this morning, Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, that's the others that this story kind of talks about, are having their own mountaintop experience, if you will. It's called the Transfiguration, like I mentioned. Um, This is the moment in the story where they witness Jesus being transfigured. His clothing turns white. His body glows with the glory of God. And so they're, they're on their way down a mountain. They're on their way down from this mountain. But I think that's where we get that phrase, this mountaintop experience, this transcendent experience. And if they had access to the Scientific American, they would know to be careful and cautious as they go down because there are going to be perils for them awaiting in the valley down below. In fact, it's interesting that while they're up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, they witness Jesus with two other figures from Scripture, if you read that story, Elijah and Moses. And there's a lot of significant reasons that the story brings Elijah and Moses into this frame. Um, not, we're not going to get into those. But uh, one significant reason is that they also, if you read the Old Testament, had their own mountaintop experiences with likewise perilous descents, if you will. So Moses, he goes up Mount Sinai. If you remember in the book of Exodus, he spends a month on Mount Sinai in the presence of God. And afterwards, you remember, he goes down from the mountain and immediately encounters the people of Israel gathered around a golden calf. And he now has to deal with the chaos of that community. Elijah, likewise, goes up Mount Carmel. This is in 1 Kings 19. And if you remember this story, he has his transcendent experience of God. He witnesses the power of God and immediately goes down from there and then is confronted with the power of this woman named Jezebel. And he ends up, for the rest of the story, running for his life. In fact, he is so afraid at one moment, he is, he is thinking of suicide. He's just thrust deep into depression. So here we have Jesus in the first part of Mark 9, revealed on the mountain of transfiguration in all of his true glory as the Son of God. Um, but Jesus, just like Moses and Elijah before him, knows he can't stay on the mountain. He has to descend just like these other figures did. There's a life that he has to live and a mission that he has to be on that that happens down in the valley. And so the question really is that's being presented to us in their descent from this mountain, and the question we're being invited to, to ponder, is what will life look like as Jesus descends from the mountaintop? Like as he lives into his identity as God's beloved son and he goes toward the cross, what's it going to look like for him to live by faith? I was told by Silas earlier this week that this is actually the theme for a classic Pentecostal sermons. So if you were a Pentecostal congregation and I was a Pentecostal preacher, I'm not, but our friend Silas grew up in the Pentecostal tradition. He told me, I'd be standing up here to say, today asking you, can you live the mountaintop faith down the valley? Can I get an amen? <laughs> there you go. So can you live the mountaintop faith down the valley? That's the question. And so let's look at the question. That's the question really of faith, what it looks like to live a life of faith when life is hard. I mean, life is hard. It's not... I don't know when you came to faith and what you thought about what it was going to look like to, when you came to faith, but I know when I came to faith, I didn't think it'd be as hard as it is now. 
I didn't think there'd be such long seasons of darkness. I didn't think I'd have such vast silence. I thought, you know, I heard a story from someone this week that, you know, in their early journey of faith was hearing from God, audible voices. And I thought, well, that's how it's going to be. I didn't think I'd be here. Um, we, we experience conflict, right, in our lives, in relationships, in the world, maybe with God. And so what's it going to look like as God's people to live by faith in those times, to continue in faith in those seasons, those contexts, whether that conflict is deeply internal or external to us? How's it going to look to live by faith as Jesus does? The way I want to look at that question or those set of questions we did this morning is simply by kind of retracing the narrative of this story, by looking at it through a set of scenes. If you have your bulletin, you'll see I have three scenes listed with uh, three kind of corresponding applications. Um, we're just going to look at two scenes and two applications, par for the course. I thought we'd get to three. We're not going to get to three unless you want to be here all morning. I know I just said I could be a Pentecostal preacher, but we're not going to do that. So if you want to know the third scene and the third lesson, come talk to me. It's actually really cool, but I, we're not going to. I, I, I wrote it, and then I deleted it. So it's there, and I could talk to you about it. But we're going to look at two, okay? So the first scene, and this is in verses 14 to 19, if you want to look at it together with me. And here we find this crowd of people gathered around the other nine disciples. Uh, so Peter, James, and John have been up on the mountain with Jesus, and they come down, and we find that there's this big argument happening when they come down. And there are scribes present, and I've been told whenever there are scribes present, there's, there's usually going to be trouble in the story, and this is a, this is, there's trouble. It's not, it's not good when scribes are present usually. And the trouble is that there's this argument happening that suggests that they're challenging the disciples. Uh, they're questioning them about what's happening. It seems that they've, there's a failed exorcism attempt. They've tried to exorcise this demon from this boy's body, and they haven't been successful. And so the scribes are probably saying something like, why are you doing this? And on whose authority are you doing this? They're the religious police of the day, sort of, so they would have to give authority for that kind of thing to happen. Um, but also, and critically, they're probably, I think, probably questioning the disciples about Jesus now that he's away. I think it's their golden opportunity to get a little intel on Jesus. Because if you know the scribes and the Pharisees, they're always trying to trap Jesus um, and maybe even get, you know, try and find a way to bring an accusation against him. And so it's a situation that has elements of threat, controversy, even, like I said, the, the possibility of a charge being brought up against Jesus, that he is claiming to be the Messiah, which would have been a very serious charge, would have been a charge that he would have probably brought him the death penalty in that time. And so that's the tenor of the scene. And then Jesus comes into it in verse 16, and he asks, what are y'all talking about? <laughs> you know? And the way even I say that, that's not the tone with which Jesus asked the question. If you look at the, the Greek here, there's a real sense of reproach in his question. It's, it, he's, he's actually upset. It's one of Jesus' more upset moments in the Gospels. Um, he's, he's upset both because there's a kangaroo court happening here. Like, this is not a legal proceeding, so to speak. They're, they're you know, he's not, they're, if they're bringing a charge against him, he's not present. There's, there is sort of a decorum to that. But also, he's upset with his disciples. Um, and the reason I say that is, is we discover in verse 17 that there's this man who comes out of the crowd who, who's brought his son to Jesus. He's this distraught father of a very sick child. And his, his words to Jesus suggest just so many different things that are going on in his life. There's respect. He calls Jesus teacher. 
There's hope. I brought my son to you, but you weren't here. There's a, at least a shred of hope in him. And there's also um, frustration. Listen to this. We came here looking for you, but you weren't here. And your disciples were here, but they weren't very much good either. They weren't able to do it. And so the, the, the literal meaning of that, they weren't able, is they didn't have the strength or the power to do it. And so there's a sense of understandable frustration with Jesus, with the disciples, that in, in so many other contexts has so much power, especially if you look at Mark, he's delivered a legion, a, a guy from a legion of demons. I preached on this a, a few weeks back, and yet he can't, these guys can't get one demon out of this boy. They have so much power, and yet in this context they have apparently no power. What's, what's up with that? And I think this is a quick aside here real quick. We can appreciate this father's approach to Jesus. The, I mean, the honesty that he brings before Jesus. He's angry with Jesus. Where were you in my moment of need, Jesus? Are you out for a hike? You're on a mountaintop? Looking at the wildflowers? Like, what's up with that, Jesus? My son is dying, and you're not here to help. And your disciples can't help either. The ones you left behind aren't here. We, I think we can resonate with that sense of disappointment and even disillusionment at times, you know, even despair. I, we can appreciate all the things he brings to Jesus because they're things we often feel but maybe don't feel like we can bring to Jesus. Like we've been taught, oh, you got to kind of put your prayers in certain frames. You got to get dressed up for church. You got to have the right words. You know, you got to think the right things. There's dogma and doctrine and that's, that's kind of what it means to be a Christian, right? And I think there's permission being given to us here by the gospel that you don't. You know, there's a, a woman named Bunmi Ladishan. I think I get her name right. She's a Nigerian-Canadian author and a blogger, and she has a book of prayers entitled Dear God, Honest Prayers to a God Who Listens. And she bravely, in this, this book, if you look at it, shares these emotions, like I'm mentioning, that we often grapple with in our broken world as we're looking for divine love. And here's one of the prayers she prays, uh, and you can put this up. She says, Dear God, I decided not to believe in you today. I was upset, devastated actually, tired of feeling like I'm speaking into empty air. I was tired of being in pain. You could have rescued me if you wanted to, but you didn't. That made me sad and angry. So I renounced you in my soul and turned back for three solid hours. <laughs> Did you miss me? Signed me. P.S. I'm still kind of mad. I'm still kind of mad. I love that. <laughs> because it's another way of expressing what this father expresses, which is to say, I'm really kind of mad with you, Jesus. I need you right now. I am dis this is my only, I don't know if it's his only son, but this is my son. And the, this demon is throwing him to fires, trying to kill him, trying to destroy his life. And you're not here to help. And when you are here to help, I don't think you really care. I think it's a, it's a way of saying we don't have to figure things out before we come to God. We don't have to have the right words when we come to God. We can just come to God. There's an invitation to come to God. We can bring the complexity, the confusion, the ambiguity, the disappointment, whatever you're feeling and experiencing in your life right now. We can bring those things to Jesus. And here's the key. Jesus welcomes it. He welcomes it. He doesn't dismiss this man. He doesn't malign the man. He doesn't correct the man. He doesn't say, well, that's not really the way I would have said it. You know, there's a better way to say that. Could you put that in this language? You know, he doesn't 
uh, avoid the so-called darker emotions. He doesn't kind of walk away. He welcomes the man. Did you notice that? He, he doesn't even call the man out in this moment. He calls his disciples out, you know. Uh, how long will I have to be with you, this, this unbelieving generation? The disciples, the crowd, he calls them out. But he invites the father, verse 20, to bring his son to him. You see that? And then verse 21, he asks this, this father this, this very tender question, how long has he been like this? He's very compassionate and pastoral toward this father in this moment. He engages this man, and he understands the gravity of this situation. Which is just maybe another way to say that people just need to be seen. Jesus gets that, and we miss that so often. How much people need to be seen, not for what we can do for them, or what they could do for us, you know. The disciples seem to have, a, have kind of lost their way, I think, with this man. They're trying to deliver a demon from this man's son, and they're defending themselves against accusations of heresy, blasphemy, whatever. There's a real sense they, they, this isn't just a kangaroo court, but sort of a roadshow. They're so focused, I think, on the results of what they're trying to get done here, they forget that there's a man with a son who's suffering, and they're not even focused on him right now. I get even the sense that they draw back a little bit as soon as Jesus enters in. Like, oof, good thing Jesus is here because we don't have to deal with this anymore. These scribes, oh, so we're off the hook. But Jesus doesn't draw back. He enters in, and he draws everybody back to the main thing in this moment, which is just to see the man and his son as broken and yet beautiful bearers of the sacred image of God. He sees them. He just sees them right where they're at. You know, years ago... I think I've shared my story with you a little bit, but I was part of the outreach team at New Horizons um, Ministries here in Seattle, which is a parachurch organization that offers programs for uh, youth to help them transition out of homelessness. Um, I remember one evening we would go out on, uh, in the city, Belltown, Capitol Hill, Pioneer Square, and uh, on teams of two or three to do outreach. I was part of the outreach team. And we'd walk the streets late at night and we'd meet with young people and we talked to them, and we had re- we'd offer resources to them, encouragement, things like clean socks and toiletries and bus passes, and we'd let them know about our drop-in center, a place they could come do laundry and sit on a couch and whatever, get a meal. And so we're walking along Broadway, and if you know Broadway uh, on Capitol Hill, there's a Dick's up there, right? I got that Sir Mix-a-Lot song in my head now, but um, it just dated me too. But So we're walking on the other side of the street, and I see there's the dicks there, the, all the neon. I see, and there, I see this young girl sitting by herself. It's like she just stood out to me. Um, and she's leaning up against one of those uh, metal kind of hoops, you know, where you can park your bikes, you can lock your bike up, you know. And she's leaning there, and she has her hoodie up, and she's just kind of crouched down. And, 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 uh, and I thought to myself, I don't even know why, because, I mean, it's dark. She's wearing mostly black, and, but she, I could just see her. And I remember, and I said to my, my friends, I said, you know, if she's still there, when we circle back, we're going to walk all the way down Broadway and then come back. Um, let's stop and talk to this girl. And so we did, and she was there, and we stopped, and we asked her if, you know, she needed anything. And we had a backpack with things and told her about the things we had, where we were from. She's like, I've been to New Horizons. I've been here all day. I've got everything I need. Thank you. I've got plenty of things. And so then we just asked, like, would you mind if we just sat down with you for a few minutes, just spend some time with you? 
and she agreed. And, uh, and one of my fellow outreach workers, who I'll call Susan, um, we sat there for a few minutes, and, uh, and she just kind of was quiet, you know. And she just kind of said, hey, what's your name? Uh, and she hadn't looked up at us at that point. She was totally, like I said, silence. And, and then she looked up through tears, had her hoodie up still, and looked at us and said, my name's Emma. I knew at that moment she wasn't giving us her street name. I'd heard a lot of street names to that point. These are names that kids give each other or might take on to maintain an anonymity. You know, it's often an unsafe place to be, so you don't want people to know who you are. Or maybe just take on a new identity. You had a clean break with your old life. I could tell she was telling us her real name. My name's Emma. So we sat in that for a minute or two longer, and then I just said, Emma, I noticed you're crying. Why are you crying? And she said this thing to me that I'll never forget. She said, because you're the first people today that have stopped, and you're the first people today that have asked me my name. In fact, I've been here, I come here all the time, and I get all kinds of things from people, but nobody stops to ask me my name. People need to be seen. Yeah, I mean, she needs help, and she needs housing, and she needs support and all the things, but at the fundamental level, we are not objects of ministry, objects of prayer, objects of all the things that we might try and do for people. We are, we are image bearers. We are people God's made. We have an identity, beautiful, broken, sacred. And so that's the first lesson here. People just need to be seen which has to do, there, there's a type of healing, I, I guess I would say, that has to do with our sense of belonging and belovedness. And that's not to say, and please don't hear me wrong here, that God doesn't want to deliver us from things. I do believe that God wants to deliver us from our demons, uh, that God wants to heal our lives. I do believe in the work of New Horizons to provide holistic healing to people. But I also believe that God wants to form a community like ours, that when we're in these four walls and outside these four walls, we're known by our commitment to people's lives, to who they are, reconnecting people with their sacred identity. Um, that has, in many cases, been disregarded, as you, in the story of Emma, or forgotten or ignored. People just need to be seen. That's the fundamental essence of this story. And that's the first lesson. Here's the second scene, okay? Verse 20. So the man brings his sick boy to Jesus. And this demon who's afflicting him um, is aware of Jesus. And he puts on this last show of defiance and arrogance and throws the boy to the ground. And he's foaming at the mouth. It's a really graphic scene. Um, I think any parent reading this can just feel the gravity in this scene, right? But notice in verse 21, Jesus doesn't seem at the moment really concerned about the demon, which I think is fascinating. He turns to the father and he asks him very empathetically, how long has your son been like this? So he opens the father up and for some reason that opening of the father, remember I said the father has this sort of frustrated tone about him, tends to shift and now he's a little more vulnerable and he says, well, since he was a child, it's been a long road for me and his, maybe his mom, you know. Maybe he's a single parent. I'm very tired. 
I got nothing left. I got no money left. I got no doctors left. You're kind of the last hope. Um, I got no strength left. I got no faith left. In fact, I don't even know if I really believe. I mean, he kind of articulates this. But even so, and here's what he says, if you can do anything, then would you take pity on us and help us, Jesus? I mean, such an honest and raw moment, right? If, I mean, he obviously, I don't even know. Maybe he does know that Jesus is the Son of God. He wasn't up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He does have a sense of respect for Jesus' teacher, but I don't know if you ever talked to God that way. Well, God, if you can do anything, I mean, not sure, but whatever, you know. If you can do anything, would you take pity on us and help us? And this is really the crux of the story because it reveals, I think, the essence of faith. Which is to say, it's, it's an act of courage. It's an act of courage that most often set into motion our journey toward liberation and healing. Acts of courage that set into motion our journey toward liberation and healing. The Irish poet David White, who I've recently discovered, um, he, and I don't know how many of you guys know who David White is. A couple of us. Okay, good. So, well, this is great because he's got a book. I just picked it up. I love it. Called Consolations. And I got it in the back. But don't take it because I only have one copy. The Solace, Nourishment, and Underlying Meaning of Everyday Words. It's sort of a dictionary of words that we might think we know the meaning of, but we don't. And he's a poet, so the writings in there are really beautiful. And he has this entry on courage. And he says, courage is a word that tempts us to think outwardly to run bravely against opposing fire, do something under besieging circumstance, and perhaps above all, to be seen. You think of this in terms of social media. To be seen doing it in public, you know? To show courage, to be celebrated in a story, rewarded with medals and given the accolade. That's how we think of courage, right? But look at the linguistic origins of courage and it's, if you look at the linguistic origins of courage, it's to look into a more interior direction and toward its original template, the old Norman French word cour or heart. Courage is the measure of our heartfelt participation with life, with another, with a community, with a work, and with a future. I'll say that line again. Courage is the measure of our heartfelt participation with life, with another, with a community, with a work, and with a future. I love that because of how that echoes what this father is saying to Jesus when he says, if you can. That's a moment of courage. He, and, and Jesus doesn't react in defensiveness toward the father as I think we might, a passive-aggressive uh, passive way of responding. You know, um, like, what do you mean, if you can? <laughs> like, I'm the son of God. Like, I just came down from the Mount of Transfigurations. You know, I could blow fire from my hands. Instead, he's inviting the man's courage. In fact, if you look at the Greek, it's very subtle of that sentence, if you can. The subject of the you is undetermined. So he could be talking about himself. Well, if I can, Jesus, if I can, or if you can. It's like he's playing tennis with the guy and hitting the ball back at him. If you can. Not if I can do it, if I have the ability, if I can, if you can, if you can believe it. If you have the faith, if you have the courage, right? If you have the courage to participate, remember what that line was, to participate in this story with another, with a community, with a work, with a life. Do you have the courage 
father of this boy, to participate in his life, no matter what I do for you or don't do for you. Can you participate in that? That's courage. That's faith. In other words, he's inviting this man's heartfelt participation in his son's deliverance by first adopting, I think, a posture of vulnerability and then being willing to walk through that door with whatever the outcome looks like. That's what Jesus means when he says, after the if you can, everything is possible for the one who truly believes. Everything is possible for the one who truly believes. In other words, he's not talking about a list of doctrines and convictions or dogma that we might adhere to. Nor is he saying that anybody can do anything, as we often hear this phrase, I think, preached, as long as you have enough faith. Such a theology, by the way, is not a theology of Jesus. Anybody can do anything as long as you just have enough faith. That's frankly cruel. Because uh, there are many of us who have prayed, who've been very faithful, who have believed with our whole being and not seen God work not gotten the results of our prayers. Not, even though we faithfully ask God and present ourselves to God. So Jesus isn't talking about that. He's talking about the response of this man's heart to the heartache and the longing that he's experiencing. He's inviting the man to actually articulate what then happens in verse 24. He's opening the door wide for this man to say this. Hey, anything is possible for the one who believes. And then did you notice the man says, right next, the door's open, it's like Jesus just opened it up for him. Oh, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. I mean, that's one of those beautiful statements of faith in the entire Bible. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Uh, Mark uses a word there to describe the tenor, the mood of this man's statement. We think of it as a, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. <laughs> We're very Western, very intellectual. I, I am. I should, say, I should speak for myself, use I statements. I'm very Western, very intellectual. This is not an intellectual statement. The word that the Bible uses to, to describe that statement, and I'm not going to try and dramatize it for you because it might break the mic, is the word crazo. It's the word croak. It's an automatopoeic word. It's actually meant to mimic the, the croak of a, a raven, if you've ever heard a raven croak. Um, so that's the mood. It's a heart cry, a, a vociferation, to use a fancy word. It has to do with this, this man's guts. It's the same used, word used of this evil spirit. If you look on in the story after we finished, in verse 26, it shrieks and convulses before finally coming out of the boy. It's a shriek. It's a convulsion. It's the word also used of Jesus. When he, when he says on the cross, he cries out, he crossos, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of the heart, not of the head necessarily. This man, as I heard someone once say, is crying from his guts, not his gray cells in this moment. And that's where faith really begins. It's a heart thing. It's a croak. It's a cry for help. This man is in desperate need of help. He's drowning. And I, I was a lifeguard once upon a time. And I've never, never not once had somebody who's drowning tell me, hey, can you teach me how to swim? Can you help me overcome my drowning well, I sit passively in the lifeguard chair and watch them drown. No, I dive in. I rescue them. We might talk about it later. Why were you drowning? Why were you in the pool? You don't know how to swim. Let's talk about that. But right now, you're drowning and I'm here to save you. Help me in my unbelief. I'm drowning in the desperation of this moment in my life. I can do nothing. I got nothing left. Help me, Jesus. 
Which gets to the other thing we should note when it comes to faith. Some translations, in particular the NIV translation, if that's one you read and I often use when I preach, translate this verse to say, help me overcome my unbelief. I'm pretty, I'll just tell you right now, I'm pretty unhappy with that uh, because it was inserted by the English translators, which I think is very interesting that we did that. Uh, The man didn't say, help me overcome my unbelief. He said, help me in my unbelief. Help me. I think that's also unfortunate because of how misleading it can be when it comes to understanding the essence of faith. I already kind of talked about this, but I think many of us think about faith as something we do, something we have. If we just have enough of it, then we can overcome our problems. If this man can somehow crank up just enough faith in this moment, if I can have just enough faith in God, I can say it in just the right way, then the miracle will happen. Lord, I know I need to have enough faith in your ability for your ability to come to bear in my life, my son's life, my family's life, my spouse's life, in the life of my, the broken world around me. If I just pray enough, with enough raw energy and true conviction, you, you said you'll move mountains, Right? You'll do miracles. I know you will. How many of us have been formed to think that way? And you don't need to raise your hands. But I think many of us have been formed to think that way. We might think that we need to have enough faith in God for us to deserve God's healing. Like we feel so much shame because of the things we've done or said or where we've been or haven't done. You know, we haven't really prayed that much lately. So how dare we start praying? We don't really go to church that much. So how dare we start asking God for things? You know? Maybe God's kind of mad at us for all that. How is God going to have mercy on my life? And of course, both of those perspectives on faith are the precise opposite of the gospel. Because as you read the Bible, what you discover is you don't possess faith. You don't have faith. Faith is not something we can grasp at, drum up. It's not something you can earn. Faith is, well, faithfulness is a fruit of God's spirit, according to Galatians 5. Faith is an attribute of God, which is a gift. Faith is, he was promised is faithful, Hebrews 10 teaches us. The Psalms sing about this through and through and through the generations that God has been faithful to, the unfaithfulness of Israel. Faith is a gift that God gives freely and generously. That's the essence of faith. You know, I love how Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, so I'm not a Pentecostal, but was formed under the Reformed tradition, so you've got to get some Martin Luther. Uh, I love how he says this in in his introduction to the book of Romans in the German Bible of 1522. He says that faith is not what some people think. They think that when you hear the gospel, you start working, creating by your own strength, a thankful heart, which says, or can't say, I believe. But because that's a human idea, that's a dream, the heart never learns anything from it. Remember, faith is a heart thing, so it does nothing. Your heart does nothing. Your head might be doing something, your heart does nothing. And no reform, no change comes in your life. No healing, no miracles, nothing happens. Instead, faith is God's work in us that changes us and gives us new birth from God. Faith is God's work in us that changes us and gives us new birth from God. It brings the Holy Spirit with it. It is living, it is creative, it is active, and it is powerful. That's faith. And the work of God in this man's heart, if you look back at this one more time, is for this man to come to that point of understanding faith, this point of absolute, unvarnished abandon. I can do nothing. I believe. I, help me 
in my unbelief, I am drowning. That's honest. To, to admit, this is where my heart, this is the condition of my heart. This is the condition of my life. This is the degree or the lack of my hope. This is the lack, I have nothing left to offer you, God. I'm really no good to you. <laughs> Pete's like saying, I don't know. There's so much unknown. I don't know the future. I don't know the outcomes. I don't know my responsibility in this story. I don't know how it's going to affect my life. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's like saying, I'm lost. How many times have you or have we come to that place in the last two years of feeling like we're really lost? I just have to confess to you, friends, as, as one of your pastors, I came to that place. I have come to that place. Not just close to that place, but to that place during this pandemic as a leader, as a father, as a husband. I remember um, during the last year and a half or so coming in touch with this profound sense of lostness. It overcame me one day. And I was coincidentally in that passage in Luke 15, where I, not coincidentally, because I'm often there, but, you know, the stories around the lost things that Jesus tells. There's the lost coin, there's the lost sheep, there's the lost sons. And uh, I love the lost sons. I love that story. It really connects with my, my story in some ways. And I remember talking to an older, wiser friend one day who invited me to ponder my place in that story, not through the lost sons, as he knew I would do, but through the lost sheep which I don't like to do. <laughs> I don't gravitate to the sheep. And so we talked about this, and he suggested, I, well, I asked him, why, why? What's wrong with the sons? I love the sons. They're so, especially that younger son. I love that. That's the one I want to be like. All right, not like, but you know what I'm saying. And um, he said, well, you know, if you look at that story, the son has agency. He realizes he's lost. He gets up from where he was when he's lost, and he goes home, and he gets unlost. He's got agency in the story. The sheep can do nothing to unlose himself. And in fact, I've heard this from people who know sheep. I've never, I've seen sheep at the fairgrounds, but never really done much with the sheep. So I guess that makes me a little bit less of a pastor. But anyway, I've heard that sheep that try to unlose themselves just make the thing worse, right? And so a lost sheep can do nothing but stay lost is kind of the punchline. And then trust the shepherd to find him. To seek him, to find him, him or her, and to bring him home. I've been so lost this year, friends, and it's so tempting, it's scary to feel lost, especially as a pastor. And it's so tempting to stay lost. I mean, it's so tempting to, to unlose myself. It's so hard to stay lost and to trust. God's good. God hasn't left me out to dry. And to have faith, to have, that, to have the courage. It takes courage to say, even though I don't know where I am, how I got here, what to do next, I have the strength to wait on God. I don't think we think of waiting on God as a real strong posture to be in. I think we think of that as real passivity, like, eh, waiting. But why does the Bible invite us to wait so much? Wait on the Lord. He'll renew your strength. Take strength to wait on God and embrace what happens next to open-heartedly, as I said earlier, to participate with Christ no matter the outcome. I trust you, God. That's the real meaning of faith. That's the second lesson here. 
that faith is this unconditional openness to God. It's a decision to, in the face of all that's contrary in your life. That God's able, God's good, God's seeking you out. God is seeking you to find you, and God is seeking you to find you to bring you home. It's that kind of trust, and it's that kind of allowing God, the faith of God, to go work in you, in us. It's that kind of open-hearted trust that I think allows God, as David White says elsewhere, to become more fully and robustly, robustly incarnated into our lives, and for us to become more fully and robustly incarnated into the unknown, unfolding vulnerability of our existence. God wants to more fully incarnate us into the unknown, unfolding vulnerability of our existence. And so, my friends, as we conclude this morning, I'll invite our worship team back up. Uh, Might we increasingly become people of great faith? Might we, in these hours and days and weeks to come, which is to say, might we increasingly become people with open hearts to God and to one another, to God's presence, to God's work, to waiting, to trusting, to allowing God to see us and seek us right where we're at. You don't got to change your story right now to be in God's story. Wait on the Lord and he'll renew your strength. Let's pray. God, many words. <laughs> I've just said many words. Um, I'm struck in this story that we just read how few words needed to be exchanged, especially on this man's behalf. I believe, help me in my unbelief. So God, we just sit in that for a moment together. We thank you for it, the honesty of it. God, we bring you our confusion. We bring you our doubts, the doubts of our hearts, God. We bring our hope, God. We have great hope in the resurrection is coming, God, in the next weeks, this story that's part of our story. We want, we want to have hope in life, beyond life. We want to have hope in life, in life, God. And sometimes we feel hopeless, and yet we have hope, God. We, we believe, help us, God, in our unbelief. Help us and shape us and form us, God, in this community to be people who can declare that to one another vulnerably. Help us to be a community that can be vulnerable, God, in saying we believe. Help us, God, in our unbelief. We thank you for such a community, God. We worship you together. We pray in Christ's name.